It's Easter. Isn't it a great day? Great to be here. There's another day I like celebrating. It's my wedding anniversary. It's not today, but I like celebrating my wedding anniversary. It's an opportunity to consider, you know, the most important person on the face of the earth to me. And it's also a good reason for me to go out to eat. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the amazing thing is that for 41 years, she has shown up to do that. So <laughs> that's, that's always a plus for me and always amazes me. But it doesn't get old hat. I like that. I can honestly say I think it's better now than it ever has been. Can you say, I think you can say that, babe, can't you? Say that honestly. I enjoy that. It's kind of the same with your walk with the Lord. And it's like that with Easter. Because I think Easter can kind of get old hat. Can it not? You know, how many times? I've done Easter over 50 times as a Christian. And it's still not old to me. It's still not just ho-hum. I love it because it signifies the most important relationship that we can have uh, with our Heavenly Father. Transcends all other relationships. And we celebrate the resurrection today because of the significance of that in our relationship with God. And that's why I want to talk to you today. Um, now, if, if you are not um, a person who believes in Christ, I hope you know that you're in a safe place. Um, that's okay. You're still welcome here. I hope that we give you a safe place where you can investigate the claims of Christ. The older I get, the more that I look at all the worldviews in the world, the more that Christianity makes sense to me, and the firmer that I believe the gospel to which I hang my hat and my hopes depend on. Um, and I hope that you'll come to be convinced of that as well. Not because it's a fairy tale, but because I truly believe that it's um, that which life depends on. So um, I hope you'll consider that today. If you're a Christian, you've already dedicated your life to Christ. I hope that you will see that this is so significant and that living in the sense of this hope and joy it's sometimes all that we have. And maybe you haven't been to this point in your life, but I have a couple times, to where maybe the rest of the world just seems um, um, like it's not working out. And problems might be a marriage, might be a job, and you're at a low point, and it's like, what is there that I can depend on? And without the gospel, without the resurrection, I don't know what I would have done. And so, as a Christian, um, I think it's important for us to realize that, what I've called before, that irreducible minimum, because it's easy to allow church to get in the way, and it's easy for us to get discouraged when we see problems in the church. And if you've come here hoping to escape those, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not going to be the case. I'm human. Everybody around here is human. We want to be able to deal with problems well, but we've got our problems. We've got our issues just like anybody else. Um, so just trying to keep it real, right? Um, but having the singular focus of this relationship with God and of the gospel is to me what clears everything up. It's what keeps me from throwing a brick at the TV when I watch the news. 
because I realize my hope is not in what they're talking about, but it's in something else. So the more we realize that, the more unified we get as a church, and the more we make it about politics or something else, the more divisive we get. So I should end the sermon right there. That's it. (laughs) You were hoping that would be it. I'm just getting started. (laughs) So I hope that hand can stay on till 2 p.m. I love you, and I love the way you receive the word here. What a a joy it is. I've got the greatest job in the world. I don't know where that came from other than just it just flowed out well i saw a little house on the prairie this morning it made me really weepy all right let's go before the lord father thank you for your word that's true thank you for the gospel that's true cause our hearts to be focused upon it and nothing else. And would you just go before the Lord and pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart? Heavenly Father, you've heard from these brothers and sisters here this morning that you would speak to our hearts, that you would bring us a word that would cause us to be focused and hopeful and joyful. Make it so right now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the gospel is central to who we are as a church. It's central to our mission. It's central to to our life as a church. Listen to the Apostle Paul's testimony about this. For I am, ash- I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the hope of our human race. I firmly believe that. Let me give you some news. The gospel is our hope. Our hope is not a political party. Our hope is not a particular person being in office. That's not what my hope rests upon. Okay? It's the hope of every human being. If we are aware of anything the last couple years, it's that we desperately need hope. And it's what the world is offering is not doing the trick. Right? We are more divisive than ever in our country. So somehow they are striking the wrong chord. Some of you have heard of Rick Warren, who has been a pastor uh, out west, 
and uh, I believe he's retired now, but he lost his son who suffered from depression and took his own life, and he was the pastor. And this is what he said. I've often been asked, how have you made it? How have you kept going in your pain? And I've often replied, the answer is Easter. You see, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was a day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery. But Easter, that Sunday, was the day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact of life. You will face these three days over and over and over in your lifetime. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Question one, what do I do in my days of pain? Two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? Three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? The answer is Easter. The answer is always Easter. It's good to remember what our hope is not. And it's good to remember for us as Christians in the church that it's the gospel and nothing else. Not that you can't be involved in anything else, but our ultimate hope is this. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul again. For I, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What caused him to be so focused on the gospel? Maybe he tried politics. I know he tried religion, found that wanting. Wasn't about that. But it was the gospel. It was this communion with God that the gospel provided. Second point, the church community will thrive as it is faithful to the gospel. Yes, our country has been divided. Um, and it's not going to come together just because we're patriotic. Nothing wrong with that. But I remember when 9-11 happened, as some of you do as well. You remember how patriotic people were for about 30 days? And then we went back to the division that has plagued our country. The Apostle Paul wrote about division in the society that he lived in. And... That was demonstrated just like it is for us, racially, religiously, differences in education. He wrote a book about this, the book of Ephesians, and he said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So you had the Gentiles who were outcasts. They were hated. They were despised by the Jews. But Gentiles were not the only socially outcasts. Slavery was thriving during this time. And when a slave came to Christ, many who were slave owners had a difficult time going to the same church as the slaves. 
and seeing them as equals, that was difficult. Did you know that women were given separate places to sit at the back of the temple as they and the early church were seen as revolutionaries and making women equals? Jen and I recently saw a documentary on one religious movement that had VIP seating in the church. <laughs> Cracks me up. Never mind what James had to say. Don't do VIP seating. <laughs> uh, we know better than that, James. He isn't just an old dead guy. He doesn't know anything. Right? But that's the way people think. But the fact is, is that this group was divided. Among the Gentiles, there was a further division amongst the Greeks and the barbarians. Any person who didn't speak Greek was considered a barbarian. And that was because they thought of them as uneducated, couldn't speak the language, and so they would just go around saying, bar, 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 you know, like we do blah, 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 okay? And so barbarians was a word for ignorant people who, doesn't speak, who don't speak the language. So you throw all those groups in to a church. How can you find unity in that? There is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male and female. We are all one because we're Republicans. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Because we're Democrats, because we're the same race, because we're Americans. Uh-uh. Not even that. We are one in Christ because of the gospel. These were not easy social boundaries to cross. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It is the unifying force of the church. It defines our commonality. Listen, my friends, we have to be reminded of this constantly. Because trust me, Satan is going to throw the whole kitchen sink at us to try to divide, right? And we'll try to get all these other secondary issues that are so important for us to agree on, or so we think. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What do we stand firm in? The gospel. The gospel. There was a conflict that Paul had during this time when one of the apostles was hobnobbing with a group of Jews and left the Gentiles that he was associating with because he didn't want the Jews to think that he was friendly with the Gentiles. Right? 
and we read what Paul said, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, when you are divided on these issues, you are not living within the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas or Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When the gospel is not our uniting force, we exclude other people with lame excuses. We also set up false boundaries that serve to keep us divided. And we become motivated out of fear. The experiment of Christ Community Church from when it started was that we would be united around the gospel, not because we had the same eschatology. Now, I have an eschatological position or study of future things. I think it's important, but that's not why we can all fellowship together. It's not because we all agree with tongues. Now, I have a position about tongues, but that doesn't mean that's the reason we can fellowship together. The point is, these are all kind of secondary issues, and we are a church because of the gospel, not because we agree on every jot and tittle of these secondary issues of theology or because we're of the same political party. It's the gospel. Have you heard me say the gospel about 100 times already? You're going to hear it some more. Peter feared the ridicule from the Jews and losing their approval. So he rejected the Gentiles. And when churches operate this way out of this kind of, you know, um, party spirit, they become toxic. Our message becomes muddled and our testimony is tainted. I could take a couple series to share with you the horror stories in this regard and what it has taught me that nothing unites us better than the gospel. The gospel is central to the mission of life of the church. The church community will thrive as it is faithful to the gospel. But here's an important point as it relates to Easter. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. I devote my life to this, to the gospel, because I have, I think, evidence that the resurrection took place. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses. The resurrection. If it did not take place, guess who the biggest fool in the room is? It's me, and you're not far behind. That's what the Bible says. Listen to, to what another apostle said. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. I end every one of my philosophy classes with theism. And I end on this point. All of you can think 
about you know, what religion, worldview you are, but here's one thing to think about. If Christ actually rose from the dead, everything changes. It's the most important historical moment in the history of mankind. And if he didn't rise from the dead, all of us Christians are fools. That's a fact. It's essential. So while this is true, the Christian has great hope. Because the resurrection is not a naked claim. Kind of like a court case. You can't just have a juror say, you know, I heard all that evidence. You know what? I just don't believe any of it. Oh, no, wait a minute. <laughs> you have to have an answer for each piece of evidence. You just can't have a general claim and say, I don't believe any of it. You have to deal with the evidence that is given and come up with a better hypothesis given that evidence. And that's intellectual suicide to say, I just don't believe any of it. Then give me another reason as to why this evidence occurred. Here's some things to consider. We might take this for granted, but Jesus was actually buried. You say, why is this a big deal? Well, he didn't go to a retreat center to hide out. He actually died, all right? And what makes it even more believable is that he was buried by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Who would make this up that by the, the very people that had him killed, one of those guys was trying to do right by him and buried him? <laughs> I, you can't make this up. I mean, if I was making it up, I wouldn't add that in there because that's just too unbelievable. Raymond Brown said Jesus' burial by Joseph is very probable since it is almost inexplicable why Christians would make up a story about a Jewish Sanhedrist who does what is right by Jesus, end quote. Next, the tomb was found empty by a group of women followers in the patriarchal Jewish society, the testimony of women, unfortunately, was not highly regarded. The Jewish historian Josephus said that women were not even allowed to give testimony in court cases, a court of law, a Jewish court of law. But it was women who discovered Jesus' empty tomb. Again, if you wanted to create a legend in other words, not true, about Jesus, you would certainly want to insert in the first century a man that did the discovery. The fact that women discovered the tomb is best explained by the fact that that's actually what happened. And the gospel writers faithfully record that, even though in the time of the writing, it was an embarrassing fact. Number three, there are varying accounts from numerous individuals who saw Jesus alive after he died on the cross. Peter tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, or Paul, excuse me, tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the inner circle of disciples known as the 12, and then he appeared to 500 other disciples. Now, 
How many lawyers would love to have one or two eyewitnesses of a crime, right? Here you have hundreds. And then you had his younger brother, James, who up at that time was not a believer, Jesus' younger brother. Finally, Paul adds, he appeared also to me. And at that time, Paul was still a persecutor in the early church. More than one source tells of these appearances. Even the skeptical German critic, Ludemann, uh, Gerd Ludemann, said this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus died in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. And that's a critic. Lastly, the disciples believed Jesus had risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. The Jews, including the disciples, had messianic hopes for a physical military kingdom. This meant the overthrow of Rome so that Israel could be reestablished. These disciples did not look for a resurrection because they yearned for a victorious Messiah to give them victory over Rome. They didn't want somebody to die on a cross. They were downtrodden. They were defeated because of the cross. In addition, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone rising from the dead in this manner. But he did rise. And the disciples felt so strongly about the resurrection that they were willing to die for that belief. Who's willing to die for what they know is a lie? They were willing to die because they truly believe this to be true now. Their minds were changed. And so you look at these four facts and you really think that's just coincidence? They can best be explained by the resurrection of Jesus. I love reading the book of Acts because it was written by Luke, who was a meticulous writer who gathered together the data as a good historian, and he was also a doctor. And it was written to give us details of what happened right after Jesus rose from the dead. And here we find some extremely interesting stuff. Remember how the disciples were so concerned about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Remember they argued at the Last Supper? They bickered, they jockeyed for position. Now it says in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves in prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. <laughs> what? The same guys who were fighting are now in prayer. By the way, the same guys who fell asleep in the garden when they're asked by Jesus to pray are now in an upper room praying. Why? Acts 4 says this, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. 
Maybe the more we are gospel-focused, the more we have this singular affection for the gospel, the more that grace flows. The more that we operate on the secondary things, political things, it has a way of just kind of plugging up grace. The resurrection changed a group of selfish men into a grace-giving, sharing community. You know what I think? I think that's what's beautiful about this church. I mentioned it was kind of an experiment because I remember when we first started over 30 years ago, and it was like, this is what has united us. And we have been so tested about this. I remember years ago, I'm not going to get into all the details of the story, but we were going to add, the elders were going to add something to our statement of faith, some eschatological statement. And, um, you know, we thought, you know, that, that would be necessary. And to a person, we're all like, man, you know what? It just doesn't sit well with me, even though we'd already announced it to the church. And so we said, no, you know, I think we've made a mistake. I came back to the church the following Sunday, and I said, you know, I think we're not going to do this. You know what people did? They applauded. Because like, well, we knew you were stupid, but we're just now appreciating <laughs> that you are getting it, okay? Because the more you get away from the gospel being what unites us and focus on all this other stuff, I think we lose some of the power, some of the grace. The gospel is central to the mission and life of the church. The church community will thrive as it's faithful to the gospel, and the resurrection is essential to the gospel. And when God opens up our eyes to the truth of the gospel and the resurrection, your life is faced with transformation. And listen, it can happen to the best of people, even religious people who see themselves as righteous, but are in great need of gospel transformation. I want you to hear the story of somebody in our church about this. You may know her. We call her Janet. Come on up here, babe. I hope you know when I say babe, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, it strikes me when uh, we're talking about religious people. Do you remember... <laughs> You know what I'm going to say? <laughs> that uh, Janet grew up in a certain um, religious tradition, and one of the first Sundays she came to our church, she genuflected right at the pew, <laughs> which, you know, we didn't do as a tradition in our, in our church. I thought you were going to say something else. Oh, well, I want to hear that story now, all right? <laughs> we had a Bible teacher that said the King James was the only way. And oh, yeah. I remember telling Kevin that, and he just said, no, that is not true. There's other versions. And that was like our first big argument, it wasn't was. it? Yeah. It was. The King James Version. See, when you get in these religious arguments, it does no good, all right? <laughs> and that was the only argument we've ever been in. <laughs> no. Well, I have you up here because I think you've got a great story of um, how you came to Christ. So I'll just give it to you and then... Okay. All right. 
Well, I was born in St. Louis. I was one of five children. Um, my twin and I were the youngest. I had two older brothers, an older sister, and my twin. We, my twin and I looked nothing alike. In fact, my mother entered us into a contest for most unlookalike twins in St. Louis, <laughs> and we came in second. <laughs> um, I was raised in a religious home, but not a Christian. Sorry. I don't like microphones, but Is that on? on? I won't make you start from the beginning. Thank you. All right. I was raised in a religious home, but not a Christian home. Um, I had a dad who worked really hard, a full-time job in the day, several different ones at night just to raise all of us. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she also worked really hard taking care of us since dad wasn't home as much. And as a young girl, I remember the Lord wooing me, just um, speaking to my heart, and I remember just reading in the book of Genesis. But first of all, none of us had a Bible in my family. We had this big, giant family Bible. And so when no one was home, I just would read the Bible because I mean, we just didn't do that. But I just wanted to read God's word. And the first time I remember reading was the book of Genesis. It didn't make a lot of sense. So I moved on to the beginning of the Gospels to the book of Matthew. And the Lord really touched my heart when I read Matthew 6, if you don't mind opening Sorry. that, Kevin. Um, this is what he spoke to me as a young girl and, and not even a believer yet. It was the Lord's Prayer, and it said, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And I just remember, I just cried, and I thought, wow, this is pretty powerful. And as the years went by, I was really involved in junior high, high school. I loved school. Um, I, I would periodically read God's word and, and pray to him as well. And then in my early years of college, my dad got really sick. He was a really heavy smoker. Um, he had lung cancer. So I wasn't able to spend much time with him in those early years, but he worked so much, and it was such a blessing to be able to just have time with him. I would sit and read scripture to him, especially John 14 and 15, and it amazed me that every time I read to him, his pain would subside, and I thought, wow. And then one day, my dad said to me, as he was sitting next to me, no one or nothing can help me. No one can save me. And I remember sitting quietly next to him, sharing his despair. I just felt so discouraged and hopeless, and I had no answer to give him. And shortly after that, my dad said that he had a dream about heaven, and it was just the most beautiful singing that he had ever heard. He said that he saw President George Washington and Abraham Lincoln <laughs> in his dream, which looking back, I believe they were Christians. Um, he said he didn't want to wake up because it was so beautiful. And then two weeks later, my dad passed away. And on the day he died, I remember walking out of his hospital room, somehow praising God that my father died on the first day of spring and that his first grandson named Kevin was born directly above his hospital room, but my dad never did meet him. Um, after my dad's death, my whole world was just rocked and so was my foundation. 
I um, began to seek out relationships. I traveled overseas and met special people. I taught school that first year, but there still was really such an emptiness. Um, around that time, I was asked to go to a Bible study, and um, I went to a Christian conference as well, and I remember um, just hearing the gospel for the first time. And my sister, her husband, and I all stepped forward that night to receive Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And I know that I had the answer that my dad was longing for, that I was longing for, that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that he knows our future, past, present, and future. He has a plan for us. He will never leave us or forsake us, and there's hope. So I wish I would have had that answer to give to my dad at that time, but I have to say that there were many nights that my dad would call out to Jesus in pain, and I know that the Lord met him there. In fact, on the day that my dad died, he was in the hospital. My mom and I went home just for a quick dinner. We came back to the hospital, and we missed our dad dying by minutes. And I've never seen this before, but my dad had a smile on his face. So I know the Lord met him right where he was at. So praise God for that. Um, I knew I could never go back to my family church that I was raised in, and I immediately started going to a Bible-believing church where the gospel was preached that very next Sunday. I just fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with his word. I loved this new church because it preached the gospel, and I was also um, baptized as well. And the new church I attended just happened to be the same church that Kevin attended. <laughs> Um, Kevin was a youth and college and career pastor, and we soon became friends. We started. And, and I'll just insert right there that I decided you and I ought to just study the Book of Solomon together. This discipleship. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> we soon became friends. We started dating on Easter Sunday. He proposed to me on July 4th, and we were married at Christmas time. All within a really short time. When you span. know, you know. There's no reason to wait. Just. <laughs> So soon after that, we moved to Denver, Colorado. Kevin wanted to continue his schooling. After that, we came to Springfield, and he opened up a furniture business that he managed. We had four babies within just shy of three years, and one of our babies was very sickly and was in intensive care for a month or so. Um, so, and with little ones so close in age, I mean, it was a really difficult time. Kevin was working so many hours really wasn't a, a home a lot during that time. So um, it really was a time to depend on Christ and to seek him. And we were just so grateful for our four children. Um, we began attending this church in 1985. Kevin was an associate pastor here for two years. And then he became the pastor in 1990. So altogether, that's been about 34 years, would you say? And within that time, our four children had married spouses who were the most wonderful spouses. We prayed for them since our children's birth. So to see who God had for them was just such a privilege and um, such a blessing. And we're also blessed with nine grandchildren. My, uh, one, my, one of my youngest grandchildren who is here today says, 
but Grammy, you have 12 grandchildren, so I had to count with him on each of them, but there are nine. <laughs> um, they all live within a couple blocks of us, so I really, we see them quite often. But I just wanted to say also what God has done in this church since that time is so amazing to me. We went from a small church to a church filled with wonderful people, a church building, all of your faces, just look around. This is the first, second service. But God has just done so many wonderful things through this congregation. And I'm just so grateful for you all. I love you all. And it's been such a privilege um, pastoring, or I should say Kevin pastoring and me beside him. So thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Praise God for new beginnings and what he can do to totally change a life and the whole trajectory of one's life. And I'm just truly grateful. Now you see why I like her? I've told people often, well, my kids got their good looks from me because their mom still has hers. Right. <laughs> it's a wonderful story of the transformation that Jesus makes in a life. And I think the thing about Janet is she grew up religious. She thought her and God were fine. And yet, when the gospel was presented, she realized that uh, there was this great need uh, for this hope. So that describes you today, I want to give you that offer that uh, the gospel is your only hope. And you can pray to God right now, right where you sit, and affirm that hope for yourself. So let's all bow our heads.